welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for March 11th to 17th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Hendrikus Stam on the very first psychology experiments in which rats were run in mazes. And finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more in this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. March 11th. In 1959, Donald T. Campbell and Donald W. Fisk's article, Convergent and Discriminant Validation by the Multi-Trait and Multi-Method Matrix, was published in Psychological Bulletin. When a citation count was done in 1992, this article was found to be the most often cited article published in Psychological Bulletin in the past 40 years. For March 13th. In 1964, New York tavern manager Kitty Genovese was murdered as she attempted to return to her apartment in the early morning. None of the more than 30 witnesses intervened to help her, and the murder stimulated decades of social psychological studies of bystander intervention. For March 14, in 1960, Ernst Hans Gombrich's book, Art and Illusion, A Study in the Psychology of Pictorial Representation, was published. For March 15th, in 1921, the J. Walter Thompson Advertising Agency publicly announced hiring behaviorist John B. Watson. Watson's first job was to survey the market for rubber boots along the Mississippi River, and his first account was U-Ban Coffee. Also for March 15, in 1938, Freud's home in Vienna was overrun by Nazis one day after the German occupation of Austria. The Nazis destroyed Freud's private library and publicly burned all of his books found in the Vienna Public Library. Also on March 15, in 1938, the first report of treatment of a mental patient by electroconvulsive shock was delivered by Italian psychiatrists Ugo Cerlatti and Lucio Bini. The use of shock was based on Ladislas Meduna's theory that schizophrenia and epilepsy were antagonistic, although Meduna induced convulsions by chemical means in his therapies. Also for March 15th in 1950, Theodore W. Adorno, Elsie Frankel Brunswick, Daniel J. Levinson, and R. Nevitt Sanford's book, The Authoritarian Personality, was published. The book introduced the California F Scale, an instrument that made studies of authoritarianism a dominant theme of social psychology in the 1950s. And finally, for March 17th, in 1917, the first issue of the Journal of Applied Psychology was published. G. Stanley Hall, John Wallace Baird, and Ludwig R. Geisler were the editors of the journal. On March 11, 1901, the American Journal of Psychology published the second article of a three-part series by Clark University graduate Willard S. Small on the mental processes of rats. This particular article is notable for having reported the very first study in which rats were made to run through mazes. If you browse the podcast series' website, you will find a link to a picture of the maze Small used in the entry for today's show. 
The URL is www.yorku.ca slash Christo, C-H-R-I-S-T-O, slash podcasts, with an S at the end. On the phone to talk to us about the little-known small and his stupendously influential experiment is Dr. Hendrikus Stam of the University of Calgary in Canada. Professor Stam is the founding editor of the journal Theory and Psychology, which is published by SAGE, as well as being the co-author with Tanya Kalmanovich of the article E.L. Thorndike and the Origins of Animal Psychology, published in American Psychologist in 1998. Professor Stam... So there had been some psychological research on animals prior to Willard Small's maze studies. Uh, could you start by telling us about some of that? Sure. Uh, there, there was a considerable body of literature on comparative psychology. Uh, much of it was British in origin originally. Um, Lloyd Morgan, uh, for example, had been to the United States, um, had lectured uh, here, and uh, he visited in 1896, and, and his, uh, he returned again in 1904 to deliver the Lowell Lectures uh, at Harvard. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, his work was fairly widely known in North America. And, of course, there was some interest in, uh, among biologists, the behavior of certain animals. A lot of the studies that were published uh, were what later gets called anecdotal studies. In other words, they were studies that were descriptive and were in many ways simply descriptions of the feeding habits of the developmental process of various kinds of animals. And there seemed to be very little rhyme and reason to them in the sense that, you know, as Robert Bokes pointed out, there was a kind of uncertainty about comparative psychology in the late 19th century precisely because the question that comparative psychologists were concerned with was the animal mind and the question of what the qualities of an animal's mental experience was was such a broad question that it didn't seem to fit with the kind of pragmatist orientation of the new psychology. Uh, and what experimentation suddenly did for comparative psychology was allowed comparative psychologists to change uh, their orientation so that uh, rather than asking, you know, what is an animal mind or uh, what are the qualities of the animal's mental experience, experimentation uh, suddenly allowed psychologists to ask what kind of facts about psychological features and processes of the animal mind, such as intelligence, instinct can we gather. So one of the most important forerunners of the work by Willard Small and uh, his colleague, uh, his fellow student at Clark, Linus Klein, was the work of, uh, of course, Thorndike. And Thorndike in particular had been uh, a student of William James's at Harvard uh, and moved to Columbia to do his PhD. Thorndike's doctoral thesis was uh, was able to demonstrate was that by placing animals in uh, a puzzle box that is in a confined space where they had to from which they had to escape, uh, he was able to create what he called the learning curve. That he, that is, he was able to demonstrate that through a process of association, eventually the animal was able to escape, and after a first escape the animal's subsequent escapes became much more rapid. So this was a very simple and early form of experimentation. 
And that was, in fact, it was very influential because the early comparative psychologists all cite Thorndike's work, uh, even though many of them are critical. So Wesley Mills, for example, at McGill is very critical of Thorndike's work and says, well, you know, it's like putting a man in a coffin and lowering the coffin into the ground and then trying to understand his psychological makeup. And Linus Klein and uh, Willard Small themselves, although citing Thorndike's work, are clearly uncertain about it for its lack of naturalist characteristics. Right. Now, this is all well prior to the era of behaviorism. Um, functionalism is the dominant approach in the United States at this time, and explaining consciousness was widely regarded to be the main aim of the discipline, and, and animal psychology was looked on with some skepticism by many. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that historical context? The notion that animals were important was, of course, derived from evolutionary psychology. Uh, G. Stanley Hall, uh, who at that point was, of course, the president of Clark, had Edmund Sanford run his laboratory at Clark and realized that as Sanford was developing his important laboratory manual, that he needed to do something comparative. Uh, so there was, a, there was a kind of ambivalence about comparative psychology because there was so much work to be done in human psychology. But at the same time, there was a recognition that this had to be included in some way. So you have a general appreciation for the question of animal mind as a subsidiary question of the general question of the human mind, and the animal mind is to be investigated using the procedures of comparative psychology. Now, prior to 1898, people weren't quite sure how to do that. So you, you see, for example, in the first volume of American Journal of Psychology, an article about the nesting of crows, which is simply a descriptive piece about what crows do and, and how they build nests and so on. And it ends with a discussion about uh, legislation of, you know, the shooting of crows in the United States. I mean, it was that at that level that people began their comparative psychology investigations. Mm -hmm. um, but somehow it was felt that, uh, and particularly with the work of uh, Romanus and Morgan, having come over from uh, Britain, it, it was clear that uh, understanding of animal minds could, be, uh, could only be accomplished by analogy to human mental experience. So there was this kind of uh, understanding, at least an uh, implicit understanding, that this formed an important part of the overall picture of psychology in the late 19th century, and that one piece of the puzzle was to understand the wide range of appearances of the mental in nature itself by looking at a wide range of species. Right. So, so the underlying premise or understanding was that there was they were going to find an, an evolutionary continuity among minds in different species, yes? That's right, yeah. yeah okay. the, uh, it basically to essentially look for, and this was rigorously uh, criticized later, um, look for as many kinds of examples of animal mind as, as there were in nature. Mm -hmm. So now what do we know about Willard Small? Uh, where had he been educated and what brought him to the idea of running rats through mazes? Well, this is an interesting story because Small, of course, uh, uh, did very little after he left uh, in terms of research, uh, he did quite a bit, but in terms of research, he did very little after he left Clark University. 
Small attended Tufts College uh, and uh, received a, a bachelor's degree in 1894 and uh, what was called an AM degree in 1897. Uh, and then he moved to Clark University where he worked uh, under Sanford. And of course, this is what we remember him for, for his three papers that he published uh, in the American Journal of Psychology uh, as part of his doctoral research. Shortly after that, when he graduated from Clark University, he served on the faculties of Michigan State Normal College and Los Angeles State Normal School. In other words, he uh, became a faculty member at uh, teachers' colleges of various kinds. And then he worked as an educational administrator in the public schools of San Diego, Patterson, New Jersey, and uh, eventually in Washington, D.C. And in 1923, he became the dean of the College of Education of the University of Maryland. By 1932, his entire publication output was still just those three papers uh, in the American Journal of Psychology. In other words, he became an administrator uh, and ended in uh, in various educational contexts um, and really never followed up on this research in any way. It was uh, probably typical of many early uh, psychologists that they ended up doing something different from what they had uh, started out to do in graduate school. Uh, but otherwise, be beyond those sort of bare facts of his uh, his. Uh, career, we know very little about him, probably because he left psychology for all intents and purposes. Right. So what gave him this idea of putting rats in mazes and measuring the the time it took them to run through them? Well, uh, Small and Klein came together to uh, Clark University as graduate students, and they were both interested in comparative uh, psychology, Klein said uh, in an interview that he gave in 1930, he said, I entered Clark in 1896 with the intention of studying zoological psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the, the two of them were together and obviously uh, working on similar uh, projects. Klein published a paper in 1899 on what he called methods in animal psychology where he had uh, described an ex- a set of experiments that were essentially using uh, a kind of version of Thorndike's puzzle boxes, except uh, uh, they were reverse. In other words, uh, food was inside the box, and the animal had to, in some ways, find its way, dig its way into the box, mm-hmm. uh, using rats, using the white rat, actually. So the white rat was in the laboratories at Clark University, and it was Edmund Sanford, at least this is what Willard Small uh, acknowledges uh, Edmund Sanford had suggested that they think of using a maze, and, and the reason for that was that uh, the maze appeared to be, and by maze, of course, they meant a very particular maze. They, they meant the Hampton Court maze, or a version thereof, uh, for rats, built for rats, that allowed the experimenter to see the activity of the rat while the rat was seeking food in the middle of the maze. In other words, the, the rat had to solve the maze. And Fa- when Sanford suggested this, Small thought this was apparently a good idea, because he immediately went out and built Hampton Court maze copy. In other words, he went to the Encyclopedia Britannica, he drew a diagram, he said he corrected it to a rectangular form so that it was easier to build, 
and he made three different mazes of three different dimensions, uh, but each of them were copies of what was in the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica article on the labyrinth. This then turned out to be the first maze, and it was naturally it was a very complicated maze as opposed to the kind of simple mazes we think of today. Um, there is a picture in the uh, 1902 paper of this uh, of the first maze, uh, a diagram. And uh, when Small began his studies, he began with wild rats, what he called wild brown rats. He used three three of these and rapidly discovered that the brown rats were both more active, but also more afraid than the uh, laboratory, what would, would become the standard laboratory rat or the white rat. Hmm. So he describes his first experiment with the uh, brown rat as having been very difficult, uh, and uh, he wasn't quite sure what to make of these results. Uh, you have to remember that the, the uh, three uh, adult wild rats that he placed in the maze, he would place them in the maze in the evening because he would be worried about noise from adjoining rooms. And then he would leave them all night. He would watch for a certain amount of time, uh, but then he would just leave them all night so that they could explore the maze and uh, become familiar with the maze and so on. Right? And then in the morning, he would take them out, put them back in the cage, and then he would test them again. Um, so when he left them overnight, there was no uh, food or reward in the maze anywhere? This was just an exploratory phase? That's right. He seems to have just left them. Um, and he also remarked uh, that, you know, in some of his trials, if the animals were hungry, they would uh, move faster. In other words, he wasn't consistent about his feeding patterns. Right. And as, as he becomes, when, when he um, uses the uh, white rats, he realizes that what he has to do is make sure that the animals are at least hungry. So, so what did he find? What was the outcome of this research? Well, he um, ran a number of experiments, uh, and the, essentially the outcome of the research is a long description of what rats do when they are placed in a complex maze. So he writes, for example, uh, the rats were exceedingly active during the evening, traversing curiously all the galleries of the maze, investigating every angle and nook. And he reports this uh, days on end. Um, he will say things like, oh, the, the rats make abortive starts or very human-like indecision. And in general, he says that over time, the rats, of course, finally uh, learn, as it were, to negotiate the maze. In other words, they become better, they become faster. But he doesn't uh, record their activity on a learning curve. He doesn't present a detailed report of uh, how long it takes. He says, uh, I've done this in a former paper, so he's referring to his previous paper of the uh, puzzle box where the rat is to find a hole in the box to get its food. He said, in this paper, uh, I've simply pointed out that a uh, more adequate representation might be made by compounding the time and error curves, but he doesn't actually do that. So there's no quantitative data presented in this paper. And he simply argues that, well, uh, what's more important is the naturalistic description of the rat negotiating the maze. So there was a clear attempt, uh, both 
Klein and Small uh, see this as important, that the research that they do with animals should in some way have uh, some relationship to the natural existence of the rat, mm-hmm. and the animal in general, but of the rat in this case. Now, the reason that it was important to use a maze for uh, both Sanford's suggestion and uh, for Small was that uh, in nature, rats appear to dig tunnels, he said. So the maze is like a series of tunnels. So do we know what impact this, these experiments had at the time? Uh, were they considered to be landmark then? Or is it only by looking backwards, so to speak, knowing how important rats and mazes would become later in the century that these uh, studies appear so significant? Well, in a sense, the answer is, is uh, both. Um, uh, certainly at the time, there was nothing unusual about this paper. There were a whole variety of different kinds of both natural uh, observational studies published as well as the beginnings of the first experimental studies. And this particular study doesn't uh, stand out, except that one of the things you see is very soon after the publication of this paper, uh, you see the uh, application of this kind of maze to other species. So in 1904, James Porter, who's uh, working in Indiana University, publishes a paper on the English sparrow, and he actually builds a modified version of this maze to test sparrows. And naturally, it takes a sparrow is not used to walking a maze, and of course, as, as as a bird, it's it's not the sort of environment that a bird normally uh, negotiates. So um, he reports, of course, that, um, among other kinds of experiments that he does on the sparrow, that it takes the sparrow an enormously long time, up to five hours, mm-hmm. to get into uh, the maze and discover that there's food there. Uh, at the same time, Kinnaman, who's a fellow at Clark University, uh, builds a version of the maze uh, for rhesus monkeys in captivity. So, uh, and, and this is also uh, uh, within a very short period of time after Small has done its work. So, wh- what's interesting about it is that people saw something in the model of the maze as a useful device. Uh, and if we then uh, look over time, uh, one of the interesting things is that by the 1920s, the maze has become one of the most popular pieces of equipment in animal psychology. So that, uh, for example, between uh, 1925 and 1940, the vast majority of publications uh, are publications that uh, focus on uh, animals, most particularly the rat, in maze uh, experiments. And of course, this is the era of behaviorism when the rat in the maze becomes uh, a kind of vehicle for uh, an explanatory framework. Right. Well, thank you very much for this today. We have been speaking with Dr. Hendrikus Stam of the University of Calgary in Canada about the first rat and maze studies performed by Willard Small in the very early years of the 20th century. Um, Dr. Stam is the editor of the journal Theory and Psychology, which is published by Stage, as well as the co-author with Tanya Kalmanovich of the article E.L. Thorndike and the Origins of Animal Psychology, which was published in American Psychologist in 1998. 
now it's time for birthdays. First, for March 12th. In 1685, George Barclay was born. Barclay, the Bishop of Cloyne, was an early associationist whose principle of subjective idealism asserted the primacy of mind over matter. For March 13th. In 1873, Charles S. Myers was born. Myers was a founder of the British Journal of Psychology and was a pioneer in British applied and industrial psychology. Also for March 13th in 1915, Nicholas Hobbes was born. Hobbes founded the nation's first mental retardation training program, stimulated Project Head Start, and founded programs in home-like centers for children with emotional disorders. He was president of the American Psychological Association in 1966. Also on March 13th in 1947, Gerald P. Kucher was born. Kucher is recognized for his service activities in children's legal rights, services to families of severely ill children, and the education and protection of consumers in mental health services. He was American Psychological Association president in 2006. For March 14th, in 1910, Oren Wendell Eagleson was born. Now, we'll be talking about Eagleson more next week, but he was an African-American psychologist who earned his way from high school through a PhD by working in a shoe repair shop. His research interests included racial and ethnic issues, problem solving, handwriting, music, and personality. For March 16th, in 1937, Amos Tversky was born. Tversky worked with Daniel Kahneman to develop prospect theory. And finally, on March 17th, in 1922, Patrick Soupies was born. Soupies is perhaps best known for his development of the semantic view of scientific models, particularly with respect to learning theory. And that's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P at YorkU, Y-O-R-K-U dot C-A. We would love to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 